Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Saturday, September 29th. I'm Sophie Kazis. Today, we've got a special weekend episode for you that we're publishing alongside the release of a new HBO special report that tackles the complex issue of consent through a very personal lens. HBO's special report called Consent discusses how people both public and private are grappling with issues of consent and sexual assault in the year since the first allegations against Harvey Weinstein. HBO correspondent Isabel Young leads us through a nuanced conversation about how the Me Too movement has affected everyday people. The issue is extremely personal and has had huge rippling effects on both individuals and our society at large, as everyone figures out what accountability looks like and where we go from here. So on this special weekend episode of the podcast, Vice Executive Editor Dory Carr-Harris and Broadly Editor-in-Chief Lindsay Shrupp speak to Isabel about her process making this piece, how her team decided to frame the story, and why accountability is key. So, Isabel, thanks so much for joining us. We're here today because HBO is launching a special report on consent, one that you host and I think is coming perhaps slightly inadvertently at a very appropriate and fraught time in the news cycle. But certainly you guys started working on this before the deluge of news about Dr. Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about what the thought process was in terms of how you decided to cover this issue now and and a little bit about how that sort of story or pitch meeting went. Yeah, I mean, it's been obviously a crazy couple of days, but it's also been a crazy year or so. And it's almost a full year since the initial allegations against Harvey Weinstein came about. And so we were actually intending this piece to come out next week as a kind of anniversary of that. Um, It just so happened that the events of the last few days kind of turned that on its head. But I think that there's been so many conversations around the Me Too movement, obviously. And it seemed like there was a real rift between the conversations that were happening in public and the conversations that were happening like between our friends or in private and stuff. And we kind of just wanted to attempt to to fix that rift and to try and um, have those conversations in a visual documentary style, which turned out to be incredibly difficult to actually do. Um, We wanted to discuss some of the more nuanced parts of this conversation, which have arisen, which is, you know, how does the Me Too movement affect our sex lives? How does the Me Too movement affect our dating lives? Um, Is there such a thing as non-consensual sex, which shouldn't be legally prosecuted? And I think that like, given that 
so many of these cases have come out over the last year or so, um, the conversations that were happening behind closed doors were more nuanced than the ones that we were having in public. So we kind of wanted to address that in our piece. And what did you think, if you can sort of sum it up for us, that that rift really was? And what was the key difference you felt between the way we were talking about this in public and the the private conversations that you and your peers were having with, you know, friends and, and colleagues? I mean, it is such a polarizing conversation, as we've seen in the last few days. And I think that in general, it's been one of those things where there is the rapist or the abuser and then there is the victim and often the conversations that we've been having are not that simple they're more nuanced um for me particularly it was when the Aziz Ansari case came out and and in fact I wouldn't call it a case when the Aziz Ansari story came out um that we started I mean this just led to an explosion of conversations for me and my mates at dinners or drinks or whatever and it's not that simple in reality so kind of what we wanted to address was that grey area of consent and that's the situation that I myself and so many of my friends have found ourselves in on multiple occasions and how do we have such a rift of communication in terms of one person thinking this is completely normal consensual sex and one person thinking that it's not um, and so that is the the kind of rift that we wanted to address in this piece. And Lindsay, I know on Broadly, you and the editors and writers who uh, work with you have taken this issue up as well. I think it is one that is incredibly complex. And I think one thing that we've talked about on this podcast before is how we can do justice to the nuances and the particularities of all of the different allegations and instances and stories that have come forward and not make sweeping generalizations. How have you guys sort of tried to approach that on the site? Sure. So I think it's taken many, many different forms. Um, I think a lot of it, too, is sort of really trying to look at why there is such a gray area and where that disconnect is happening. And to what this piece really digs into also is that it's happening in so many places. So it is happening in communication. It's happening in sex education. It's also when you look at the political landscape of the U.S., like half of states in the U.S. don't even have a legal definition of consent. So that's where we're also starting from in terms of even our justice system. Like if we are not even talking about consent in the same ways, how can we start to have these conversations? So I think it is about doing this or approaching this subject, certainly with nuance, with having different perspectives, but also looking to experts that haven't really been tapped in a long time because this conversation in large part has been behind closed doors to help us get a better understanding of what do we mean when we say consent? How is that uh, interpreted differently? And is there a way like what sort of education can we be doing on our part to help move that conversation forward? Yeah, absolutely. And Isabel, obviously you do talk to a variety of experts in this special, but as well, you also highlight individual personal stories and have people talking about their experiences with these gray areas and with this nuance. And you are one of those people. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the decision to put yourself on the other side of the camera and participate as someone 
being interviewed or sharing your own experience rather than the person asking the questions? Yeah, I mean, it was one of those decisions that was kind of made on the fly, to be honest, because um, we had a whole two days of women and men coming in to tell their stories um, of situations where they'd been in that grey area. And in some cases, the grey area is very grey and dark, and in some cases, it's more murky. But yeah, and I'd been listening to so many of these stories, asking women to share these very private moments of their lives and to speak with real bravery. And it's really intimidating having to speak directly to camera, knowing that millions of people on HBO are going to be watching this and to share a story that for maybe a while they haven't spoken about, maybe as a source of shame and obviously brings up very traumatic feelings for a lot of people. And it was just kind of watching and listening to so many women sharing these stories. And it kind of felt undeniably personal. I mean, it was a difficult decision because you want to retain that journalistic credibility. And often that means like keeping some distance from the story itself and from the subjects. But in this particular story, it just felt like that was unavoidable. And that for so many of us, including myself, it is very personal. And so it kind of only felt fair. um, And it only felt like I was doing, I was able to do the story justice if I also put myself in that seat. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think obviously, especially in light of what is happening now and the testimony that Dr. Blasey Ford gave yesterday, I think that what's been difficult and and what's been flowing through the news cycle, too, is a feeling that this is personal and that this does represent more than simple allegations of events, but rather that this confirmation hearing has an increased significance in regards to how we treat allegations of sexual misconduct, assault, harassment, and the Me Too movement in general, and whether or not we believe women. Lindsay, I know that this is something that you've talked about on Broadly, too. How do you, in your coverage, try to, you know, maintain that unbiased reporting while also making sure that we are giving voice to and valuing the stories that we're telling? Actually, something that's come up recently just in conversation with some of my colleagues is somebody was reporting in for jury duty and was dismissed because it was a sexual assault case and they couldn't be allowed because they had an experience with sexual assault. And it was so interesting because when you think about how many people in the U.S. or how many people in the world have experienced something related to assault or harassment or abuse in some way or have themselves participated in some sort of murky, non-consensual sex experience, how are we supposed to divorce ourselves from those conversations or take a step back and say, I'm not the one who should be reporting this? And I think what we found is that we really can't. And so I think it's about figuring out how to acknowledge that um, in our reporting and in the work that we do, but also make sure that we are still allowing for nuance and allowing for all voices in that sense to be heard and still trying to, I think there is some another part of that balance, which is trying to find the voices that haven't been heard yet. I think in the last year, there's been this fervor to really stand up and kind of shout and this sort of solidarity among so many survivors to 
shift the blame that they've felt, not to make a sweeping generalization, but that many have felt in that silence. And now it's sort of this place of, okay, well, where do we put that? If we actually want to be able to move forward in a meaningful way, then what are the sort of the next step of these types of conversations that we should be having? I think that's really interesting and, and you know, pertinent to the special um, that we're talking about. In addition to the sort of nuance that you wanted to bring forward, Isabel, and the, and the desire to, or the the need to to make it a personal story and contribute to that reporting in a multiplicity of different ways. What were some of the other points that you guys felt um, you and your producers were really necessary to hit on in this episode that you really wanted to bring to the forefront of the conversation because you didn't feel that it had been there previously? I think one area that we really need to elevate this conversation to is the topic of accountability. And we can see that given what's been happening in the last couple of days. I mean, there's one question about, you know, whether this happened to Dr. Blasey Ford. There's a whole new question about what accountability looks like, should that have happened. That's a conversation, I think, that has been difficult to address because should someone come forward and say that they were sexually assaulted or sexually harassed, we have very few options for what happens to that person. I mean, most cases go unreported. Of those that do, I think it's only about six out of a thousand rapists end up in prison. And so if we want to move forward with this, I think we have to kind of think about what we want accountability to look like. And so that's kind of what we were pushing for in this piece and where this piece ends up is um, it actually goes to a man and a woman who um, had sex back in college, um, which was 10 years ago for them. Uh, One of them, the guy calls this a drunken incident. The woman in the piece calls this rape. And um, they actually sit down and have a conversation and just bash out those differences, uh, which on the front of it is a very, very simple formula for trying to come to some kind of resolution and solution. In actuality, it's incredibly difficult to have those conversations. They're so uncomfortable and so awkward and really means having a lot of bravery and a lot of honesty and humanity. So I think that's kind of where we wanted the piece to go. We wanted to kind of poke at what accountability really looks like. Watching that part of the episode too, I was really thinking about that yesterday in watching the Kavanaugh hearings because it really struck me that I think this last year since, especially since Weinstein and started holding all of these powerful men accountable, especially at the beginning of it, it was sort of like men could make a statement and then kind of disappear from the limelight. And this was the first time, at least for me, really, that I could think of when you're actually watching the accused come to terms with and have to speak directly to the allegations in such a very, very public way. And to me, it was also really shocking. And I know that it was to so many people who felt extremely triggered or who um, called into the rain hotline, but also just thinking about, is this sort of the next step of this sort of Me Too movement? And are we really prepared for that? And how do we have these sorts of conversations or how do we bring the accused into them in a way that doesn't sensationalize and that doesn't use sort of edge examples, but also can kind of help to, again, bring in a little bit more nuance and help move that conversation forward? 
Yeah, and I think that communication is key for that. I mean, the, the scene that I keep harping on about at the end of this piece is the this restorative justice scene um, in which they sit down and have that conversation. And I think that that is definitely not a solution for all these cases. And obviously, in some cases, people deserve to go to prison and to sit and think about what they've been doing. But in reality, most cases are not going to be taken to court. And of the cases that do, most of them will not be prosecuted successfully. So we do need to have that conversation about what happens to the majority of these cases and how we can come to some kind of healing. Right. Can you define what restorative justice is and and traditionally how that process works? Essentially, it's a conversation between the offender and the victim. And that's obviously massively oversimplifying things because often those lines are not as simple as the offender and the victim, but they are made to come to the table and to sit down and to have a conversation and to, in the case of these two people that we witnessed, um, recite their version of events um, and try and understand how there's so much miscommunication and how their version of events were so very different the impact that that has had on both of their lives and how they can move forward from there. I know that it is, in some senses, a slightly controversial process Mm -hmm. um, because it does work outside of the traditional justice system. Mm -hmm. But I do think, to your point previously, like there is benefit for those who are either not able to bring formal allegations or charges into that system or because they don't feel safe in that system, which I think is a valid concern because we know the stats on how many, you know, reported cases of sexual assault actually go to trial and or end in a conviction. So when you were sort of making the decision to highlight this process as as part of the episode, what are some of the factors that went into that and, and why did you think it was really important to show this specific method of coping or or of resolution? I think it was from talking to so many survivors about their experiences and what they wanted in what accountability looked like for them and how they could possibly come to some kind of healing. And for a lot of them, it wasn't as simple as having their abuser sit in prison for the rest of their lives. And I'm definitely not really an advocate for a whole lot, and I'm not an advocate for this process. But I would say that for certain cases, I think that it does allow the survivor to be in the driver's seat. It allows them to really feel heard, to feel listened to, to be able to express the impact that it's had on their lives, to be able to tell that person, look that person in the eyes and tell them why this has hurt them so much. And the woman that we featured in this note, she it had a profound impact on her life. She had been suffering from PTSD for the last 10 years. At one point, she tried committing suicide. And she felt like for so long, for the last nine and a half years until she reached out to this guy, he just had been living his life and didn't really understand at all the consequence that it had had on her. So, yeah, I mean, we wanted to highlight it as a potential alternative solution because let's face it we don't really have a lot of solutions Mm -hmm. no certainly if there was one takeaway that you would hope viewers have after watching this episode or a key takeaway what would that be i think it's just that no one is really alone in this i mean if the last couple of days have proven anything it is that there are unfortunately 
so many people experiencing sexual assault and sexual harassment and that there is no one solution but that there are options out there and that we need to be having these conversations with ourselves with our communities and perhaps with our abusers in order to move forward make sure to watch the full hbo special report on vice news that's it for now Thanks so much for listening, and tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.